Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon and I spoke to magazine writer and author Ed Caesar. Uh, we're backstage recording this intro at the British Book Awards, which accounts for any odd noises, but it was a great interview with Ed. We talked about his career, starting off working for British publications and then moving to American publications, including the New Yorker and the New York Times magazine. And we also talked about how he juggles his writing work with his family commitments. Enjoy. Ed, thanks so much for, for coming in and coming down. It's, um, it's brilliant to have you on the show. Um, can we start a bit with talking about when and how you, you decided to become a, a magazine writer as opposed to another form of journalist or maybe another form of writer? Sure. Um, I was at The Independent for a while and uh, was doing features there and didn't know very much about journalism, to be honest, when I started. So I was trying to work out what I wanted to do. And I knew that I really, really loved being a journalist. Um, but I wasn't sure that what I was doing at that point, which was basically writing you know, turnaround features on the day, was going to be endlessly satisfying. And I had some really amazing editors. I had um, Adam Lee and Ruth Metstein and Joe Ellison, who were all uh, really encouraging about you know, people being ambitious. And I used to push across the desk all this cool stuff that I'd never seen before, American stuff mostly. You know, New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic, and Vanity Fair. And, and they used to say, you know, you should read this stuff. This is great. In physical hard copy. Physical hard copy, um, which was how we rolled back in 2004. I mean, it was online, but, like, you know, they used to get all this stuff into the office. They used to... I don't know quite how it worked, but you know, you used to get 20 magazines on the desk. And so um, they sent me the stuff to read, we'll put it on my desk, and we'd all talk about it. Um, and I remember being really, really taken by you know, some of the stuff that I was reading. I was like, this is just so much more vivid and ambitious than is the stuff I was doing. Is there a particular that struck you? Yeah. To, um, Sebastian Junger wrote this piece, I think it was called Blood Oil. About Nigeria. About, the about Delta, Nigeria, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was about this group called the Movement for the Emancipation of the Niger Delta, who uh, used to daub paint on themselves and have this, this very kind of arresting sort of aesthetic, but were, you know, in some people's eyes, terrorists who were uh, blowing up pipelines because they disagreed with the distribution of oil wealth, and in some people's eyes, kind of freedom fighters. And this piece was not only just a really captivating and I thought quite physically brave account of someone going upriver to meet these guys who'd kidnapped a lot of people, but it was also this explanation of, of about why this particular conflict that maybe you might not have heard of was the key to understanding what was happening to oil prices. and every, So it had this micro and macro um, explanatory pull the writing was really clear and do you think crisp. that was the first piece because you obviously went on to do some a fair yeah. bit of war reporting yourself in the Congo and, and uh, was that the first kind of inspiration I think I was interested in the idea of doing stuff that got me a long way from an office yeah. and that seemed to be one of those I think my interest in, in East and Central Africa is more to do you know my mum grew up there 
um, I you know I was, Kenya, I was always interested in in Kenya. Yeah. Um, my dad was in. Uh, sorry, my grandfather was in the British Army in Kenya. Okay. So he fought against the Mau Mau in Kenya, which I now realise is this kind of, prob- of problematic moment, yeah. uh, moment in. Uh, British colonial history which I'm hoping to dig into in the future and I've just got a load of his diaries and so on you know so but you know but my interest really came from having family and people that I knew who lived who had lived in Africa a long time but I just saw in this in this kind of work and the more you read it it's sort of addictive you know you keep on diving deeper and deeper not just the war reporting stuff but um, there was a you know, there's a book of New Yorker profiles that I then got given called Life Stories. Mm-hmm. And this amazingly witty, brilliant profile of Johnny Carson by Ken Tynan. Um, there's a party tonight at the house of Swifty Lazar, agent of doyens and doyen of agents. I think it starts or something like that. Anyway, this is house in Malibu where it all starts. Um, and all of this stuff just seemed so vivid and ambitious and I thought why can't I do that and the reason why I couldn't do that was because it didn't really exist here it doesn't really exist here um, but over the period of about two or three years at the independent I think I made a conscious decision that that's what I wanted to do and when did you realize you were actually really good as a journalist and that you could actually make your career? I'm not sure I've realized yet <laughs> no honestly like, I, so I, I, I was just because I was coming in today I reread a couple of old pieces, and I thought, how did any of this get in? Um, what, because you, you don't think they're good? No, I just that? feel like every time I read, you know, I, I hate reading stuff that's already been published. I find it really difficult because I find I you have know, this kind of junky scratch for the editor's pen, and I find the whole bits that I'd rewrite, and yeah. I, f- I just find it really difficult to read anything that I've ever written before, and so. Um, I was given a lot of encouragement at the Independent that I had promise, which I think was true and remains true. <laughs> had you had kind of earlier literary ambitions? Had you ever wanted to be a poet or a screenwriter? No, I'd, or, or I'd written things? a lot. I'd written a lot. You so, did want to be a screenwriter. Yeah, I wanted to be a screenwriter. Um, I had spent a very happy three months uh, in L.A. Uh, when just before I went to university. And... In the week, I was working for a Republican uh, think tank. Okay. Um, they were really, really like far out right wing, <laughs> and I disagreed with almost everything that they stood for, but was kind of, you know, fascinated by the thought processes and the kind of, you know, the sort of political science. So that was my life during the week in East LA in Claremont McKenna College, and then. At the weekends, I had a, fr- a really good friend from home who was kind of making it as a screenwriter in Hollywood, and I would go to these fabulous parties where there were, you know, there were baths full of ice with champagne bottles <laughs> in it, <laughs> and we'd talk to him about his life, and everyone would be talking about like hot scripts, and and they would talk about ideas and pitch stuff, and it was all like swingers, you know, that the movie Swingers with Vince Vaughn. Yeah, it was. It felt very much like that. It was so uh, fun and enticing and I thought oh that sounds quite cool um, and because I'd always written I'd you know I'd written uh, some fairly unreadable poetry as a teen <laughs> some you know We've some, all been there. some stories um, 
and I had this idea that I wanted to write and I was very into American fiction deep like I thought probably where this is all going to end up is I'm going to write a really brilliant novel mm. um, but you know uh, you know as soon as I entered a newsroom for the first time I thought these are my people I just like you know you know you, you've been in newsrooms they're good people you know it's fun it's the wit is bleak and um <laughs> you know really uh you know it just pulls you in you know people know stuff i remember being at the independent when i was there and there were just all these people around who had these kind of repositories of arcane knowledge there was a uh, there was a uh, trade unions correspondent i remember it was, like, it was such a kind of quaint idea of this trade unions <laughs> correspondent but he knew like if you want to know anything about trade unions he had to ask barry clement because he, he knew it. all about it and he knew it and i so I, that's why i loved you know there were all these people who and and a lot of them weren't necessarily sort of university smart or whatever. You know, you didn't have to have that kind of um, sort of you know Oxbridge or whatever you know um, background. You just people who spent a lot of shoe leather. So why did you decide to, this to leave that environment then? Leaving the the kind of I don't know institutional. Yeah, room. I just fancied fancied doing some ambitious writing, and there was only. You know, really, the only place that I could see, see a way to do that was to do it in America. So I, was, I thought, well, the way to do this is to get good enough clips that I can somehow take there at some future point. <laughs> it wasn't a fully fleshed out how, idea. Yeah, how kind of preconceived was this when you you were what like twenty six, twenty seven yeah. when you left the indie? Did you think like, yeah, definitely, I want to go and yeah. make this work? Yeah, it was really, it was really, I was really set on it. And so I got this. I got a contract writing magazine features for the Sunday Times magazine, okay. which I thought would be a kind of a stepping stone in some way, um, which it sort of was. You know, it wasn't a totally unambiguous <laughs> success that little period of my life, but it taught me a lot. Why not? Just because um, I felt like mm, I don't know. It's you know there was a. There was just, a, I think that was a period in which all uh, magazines were really, British magazines particularly, were considering, like, do we really want to run 5,000 words on something or do we want to run, you know, 2,000 words on something? And inevitably, it was going shorter and slightly less, you know, atmospheric and deeply reported. And all the things that I was interested in doing just ran slightly counter to what magazines and that magazine in particular were doing. Which is not to say that I didn't do work that I was proud of, but I, I felt like I was fighting a bit against a culture, and I was not really going to win that. Um, so, and also, you know, it kind of went south for me. I had a friend there who, uh, Amy Turner, who, you know, just after I left, um, she killed herself, and I was, and I remember her being really unhappy when I was there at the end there, and I, you know, all of these things in my mind have kind of colored it as a slightly you know it was slightly soured um and at that point while i was still at the sunday times magazine i had started doing some things for gq which were much more like the things that i wanted to do and that was a kind of fabulous space for me to be able to try some stuff out like some try some big ideas and see what see what could happen and um you know, in the same way that my editors at The Independent were really keen for me to read and uh, 
sort of drink in all this great stuff. You know, Alex Bilmes, who's now editor of Esquire, was my features editor at GQ, and he used to send me stuff as well. And we used to talk about ideas in a really interesting and productive way. So, at um, what point did you realise that you were becoming well known as a writer and editors were coming to you rather than you just pitching to them? It hasn't happened until I'd say quite recently. So, so I had, I would, go, I would say, you know, I got offered the job at the Sunday Times, but off the back of an award. So that was, you know, that was someone coming to me. Um, it was in fact Robin Morgan, who was the editor of the Sunday Times magazine, stood next to me at the urinals, <laughs> yeah, at the British Press Awards, and sort of talked to me about coming to the magazine. It was a really awkward you know, <laughs> moment. Um, the I suppose the the feeling is when you know when you get a couple of pieces that land, like I had a couple of pieces, you know, both for the Sunday Times magazine and for GQ that really landed. What were they? Um, there was a piece about the Congo for GQ, mm-hmm. which was one of my first things for them. With the the mask in the village, yeah, the shoeless headmaster, yeah, the shoeless headmaster. Yeah. Um, good memory, good reading. Um, good so that was yeah, good preparation. <laughs> so that was that landed, and pe- and people were like, oh, okay, that's sort of you know, mm. it was it it was really hard to do. That trip was sort of nightmarish at times, but um, you know that kind of stuff gets you a certain reputation. People who come to you, um, and also I see were there not that many people willing to do that kind of risky? Work? Yeah, I think that was it. You know, I was I was willing to do it. I was, you know, obviously quite ambitious for what I wanted to happen in terms of stories. Like it wasn't, I wasn't. I didn't want to go to Congo and like file five news pieces. <laughs> Did it feel kind of prof- not on a risk thing, but kind of isolated doing this stuff in Britain where there's not really a tradition of doing it? Yeah. Did you feel you kind of lacked peers, as it were? Um, at that stage, I did feel like I lacked peers. I really did. I felt like there was no one else doing it. There was no one else who could tell me what to do. Did you feel you had mentors in place? I had pe- Well, no, I didn't really. Yeah. At, at that point, just at that point, sort of end of... I can't really remember. I was trying to think about this. I can't really remember my twenties. I don't know what happened, but um, but yeah, I did. I, I do remember that feeling of not really having people to tell me what to do. Um, I think I'm trying to remember what the timeline is. But like Sam Knight is about my age, mm. and we would do. You know, after about 2010, 2011, I got the feeling that there were at least like two of us trying to do this similar kind of thing, and you know it helps that we get on really well and so we could talk to each other on occasion about what it's like and we still go for the occasional pizza express to talk through stories and stuff um and was that an easy relationship was there ever a kind of competitive i think well i definitely think we we sometimes like you know at the beginning at least we were like oh is there is there enough room for both of us you know did you ever find yourselves after the same story not really no, I mean I always think it's it's not a zero sum, right? It's not like it's not zero sum, and I th- you know and and it helps I think that uh, Sam is like a generous and collegial dude who is very 
you know, I think he realizes, perhaps he realized perhaps earlier than I did that it's not zero sum. Mm. I think at times when there's been other shit going wrong with my life and, you know, I haven't had a good year, I sometimes feel anxious about the fact that there are other people doing this work. When I'm feeling good about myself, I'm very generous and, you know. Yeah, but it's not, it's not, it's a work in progress. <laughs> you know, like, I, it's, it's hard. It's a, do you, you know, get approached from young would-be long-form writers for advice? Or do you feel like it's kind of yeah sometimes young, young yeah sometimes not interested in that yeah anymore. sometimes okay um, uh, and what do you tell them I don't know what do you tell a coal miner going into um, <laughs> <laughs> you know 1975 coal mining I don't know no that's not quite right but I I I try to say that it's taken me a long time not just to do the kind of work that I want to do but also to um, get better at it that it's not just a question of stretching your word count it's to do with a set of skills and a series of judgments that you make about how stories work and what do you still find difficult because everyone reading your pieces would assume that it comes you know so naturally to you is there anything that you still struggle with when you're writing long form that you have to yes work on? everything I mean, everything. It's thing, really thing hard. I, the thing I find interesting about long form is it's like the full court press, right? You've got to do everything. You've got to do the reporting. You've got to do the writing. You've also got to sell the thing often. You know, it's like it's like stretching a whole set of really quite different muscles yeah. into a Gesamtkunstwerk. Uh, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Uh, like a total artwork. In the, okay. What, uh, I learned something. From yeah. Wagner. Um, I was going to say the... The thing we always ask about on the show is money, you know, yeah. and, and how people piece their writing lives together. And at that early stage when you'd, you'd left the end, you were on contract at the Sunday Times. I was, right? yeah. How did you kind of piece your your life together? I'm trying to remember. Yourself? I think I had, what happened was, I joined the Sunday Times on the understanding that I would do seven magazine pieces a year. Mm-hmm. I can remember this now. And something like 26 pieces a year for News Review. Okay. And a certain amount for culture. It was obviously, in retrospect, ridiculous. I was never going to do that. It was really that was a, that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah, it's a huge amount of work, uh, and um, it didn't work at all. And News Review was a sort of unambiguous nightmare because I didn't want to do the stuff that they wanted me to do in the way that they wanted me to do it, and also I didn't have time because I was much more interested in these seven magazine pieces, which, by the way, was probably too much anyway. And the whole thing, you know, I'd just... I'd taken on too much because I thought I needed... because my word rate was, you know, low comparatively, and I felt like I needed to accept that number of things in order to get paid what I needed to be paid to live in London and do all that stuff. So the only way I realized to make the things that I wanted to do work was to raise my word rate. So I absolutely, I just made this decision, right, less for more, find the places where you can do, you can get paid a bit more. At that time, GQ was one of those places. And eventually you get into this nice, you know, rhythm of doing a certain amount of stuff for for just for more money and that's the only way you could the the sums have to add up somehow do you find that you can't really take 
work for British publications anymore because they just pay so much less than US. I mean, I don't do it. Because they can't pay. That's, yeah, I mean, that's the main reason. Mm. I think if you're going to do what I do now, which is maybe three or four magazine pieces a year plus books, you've got to, they've got to, you know, got to pay some money. Mm. Did you do other work, non-journalistic work, editing or things around the side to make it pay? No. Um, And in fact, I always felt like you just have to take yourself as seriously as you can within the parameters of your finances. (laughs) So if I'd said to my, I said to myself, right, I'm going to try and do this work as well as I can. Mm. It has to be a full-time gig. Like, so if I'm having a really bad time, that's I'm just going to have to have a bad time. <laughs> Can you tell <laughs> you know? us your word, right? Now, um, well, uh, in US publications in general, I get about $3 a word. Um, but that varies if you're, it depends what you're doing. And I d- that's not totally unusual. No, that's no. quite, yeah, that's quite. That's what Katie Weaver's on as well. Um, but... Um, that may change. It depends who you're working for. It depends what kind of relationship you have with the magazine. You know, if you get a contract somewhere, get a higher word rate. You know, it's just all part of this weird little dance that you have <laughs> with publications. And you decided not to live in London, right? Or you, you moved out of London. I did move out stage? of London. Um, for uh, end of the, end of 2014. Okay. Um, so our second kid was just on the way Um, so my wife is a criminal barrister and I wasn't doing very much work in London I realised and it always stressed me out how expensive it was to live and my line of work isn't particularly um well, it's not reliable, you know, I didn't have steady income. So I thought we could maybe have a really good life, both of us. Her practice would work really well up there. She's from the Northwest. I could do my magazine work, perhaps with slightly less pressure, mm. make slightly better choices, you know, maybe do one less magazine story a year, but do like three amazing magazine stories. So that's the, that was the calculus. Is that you know we want to give you want to give your children the you know nicest life that they can. I was not going to do that. How tricky is it being balancing that family life when you're you know your recent piece about the lost aircraft yeah. carrier for the New York Times? Yeah, you were away for what 22 days at sea or something? You it said? was a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I assume when you're out reporting kind of <laughs> war, uh, yeah. torn areas, you're away for longer. How how draining is that? In terms of balancing, yeah, it's hard. No, it's really hard. It's really hard. And so, for instance, when I went on the ship, mm. Chloe was in a murder trial. She was defending a murder, uh, someone who'd been accused of. Actually, no, it was an attempted murder. She was she was defending someone who'd been accused of an attempted murder. And that's a really serious thing. And she's working really hard. And Paris has worked really late as well. You know, they come back and then they've got all this stuff to go through. You know, she's a proper. Um, like super accomplished brilliant barrister and you know the kids have to get to school and eat and it's quite nice to see them occasionally Um, 
And in order for that to work, I had to kind of think, well, okay, I've got to be on this ship for however long, and we're just going to have to get like one more person to help us out. And I and I, so I built it into the my deal with the New York Times. I was like, right, you're going to have to pay me more because I didn't say this because I need childcare, mm. but I said you're going to have to pay me more because it's just a huge commitment of time and whatever. And um, I, you know, I spent another seven hundred pounds, eight hundred pounds, or something, on someone to come and help in the mornings and the evenings with the children. And it's not perfect because you miss your children or whatever. But that's this kind of stuff that you have to think about all the time. It's like playing a game of three-dimensional chess. You know, you're just. We have these like diary meetings <laughs> where we're just trying to work out. You and your wife. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we have this diary meeting. It's just trying to work out, like, okay, I need to be in, I don't know, Kigali for two days or something to do something for work. But I can't do it then because this other thing's happening. Most of the time it's totally fine because we're, you know, both, you know, reasonable people and try and make it work. But sometimes we're, we're on, like, you know, virgin trains that pass each other at about crew and like sort of wave out the window. But one of the trains breaks down, like the kids aren't getting picked up from school. <laughs> you know, it's really... It and what about more emotionally in terms of kind of when you've gone to kind of risky jobs abroad? Yeah. Has she ever said, you know, I don't want you to do this? I'm no, she never said you. that. But I felt it. And if she did? She would never say that. Beyond the sort of... the pragmatic calculations yeah. did it feel being kind of outside the london journalistic literary milieu was that helpful did you ever feel you missed that in terms of where you were basing I, your I, writing life truthfully i do not miss it at all i just I've, you know I've, I've never been happier than just working and i don't miss talking to other journalists at parties i love other journalists i see them occasionally but i don't miss being in the in the mix down here really sounds really callous but I just I, I really love my work that's the thing that's appealing to me about all this stuff like I skip out of bed and I think yes <laughs> you know I've got this really cool story that I'm working on and I get to talk to a lot of people about it today or I get to write this thing or I'm working on a draft or something you know, it's not always as joyful as that, but I, re I, I do actually really love doing the thing that I do. Can we talk about some of these specific yeah, pieces? Yeah, yeah, let's do so, it. So first of all, the, the tennis story, so which which I really enjoyed. And this this came when you were in that kind of Sunday Times GQ mix, 2011, Yeah, I think the reason why I sent that to you was because I, I think it's one of those stories that shows, you know, it is far from perfect, but it shows the thing that I was trying to... I was trying to do something ambitious, and I. Uh, Can you just explain what it is for listeners? Yeah, so it's um, it's a story about the longest tennis match ever played at Grand Slam, longest tennis match ever played, I think, at all, which was between Nicolas Mahou of France and John Isner of America, and it went on for eleven hours, over three days, and it finished seventy sixty eight in the final set and the reason why it's interesting is not because it's long in but games right? in games seventy sixty eight in games in the final set. And the reason why it's so interesting is that these two guys basically fell in love during this tennis match. That they 
went through something so remarkable together, they couldn't beat each other for three days, that it forged this psychic bond. Mm. <laughs> There's something just completely fascinating about that. And so I had read, like probably most other journalism students, I'd read Levels of the Game by John McPhee, which is about the 1968 uh, US Open semi-final between Clark Gravener and Arthur Ashe. And it's a dual profile. It's, it's a profile of both players, but told through this game. And I was actually, as I was as conscious of it as this, I was looking for a tennis game to tr just try and do Did the same thing. Did you have the Foster Wallace tennis pieces in mind as well? I was, well... That string, you know, string Yeah, theory. I was, I had read them, but I was, you know, I, and they're all sort of amazing in their own way, but I don't, I'm never ever going to write like David Foster Wallace. That wasn't really, you know, and it's not a kind of achievable model for me. Um, what was, what seemed much more interesting to me was just this deeply reported thing that John McPhee did about who these two players are. The great thing in the levels of the game is Arthur Ashe, who's this kind of, you know, like languid, beautiful um, African-American, you know, Democrat voting <laughs> um guy is you know he plays kind of democrat tennis you know he's sort of freewheeling whatever laissez-faire and clark graben who's the sort of country club republican plays this kind of quite stiff republican tennis which i thought was just really funny and really like and but mahu and isner are not dissimilar figures like you know and it's really so I just found there was something really appealing about just Which setting... Which was it who was like at Georgia Tech with lots of like pretty girls and isn't parties? Isn't it? Yeah, and, isn't yeah. it? So, so and, and also, not, not, you know, to be sniffed at, I got to go to the Delray Beach Open in February, you know, to Miami. Lovely. And I went to the tennis club de Paris uh, to go and talk to Nico Mau. And it was all just kind of totally fascinating and joyful. But the the, the, I think the reason why I sent it to you was I think it gives you an indication of what I was how self-conscious I was about trying to do this I was trying to try out these modes of writing not successfully but you know you can at least sense in that piece the kind of well, I was ambitious to do um, to do a certain kind of writing and in fact you, you learn something you learn a lot every time you do something like that the second piece you sent us was, I think, the first piece you ever wrote for The New Yorker. Yeah. Um, about London's largest It's about a big mansion. house. Yeah. Um, and actually, I remember you talking about it at the Well Told Festival years ago. Yeah. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember the idea for the story came not because you were going to write a story about it, but you just toured the house. I did tour the interest. house. I did tour the house. And then it became a story. Yeah. As I, a potential buyer. Yeah, well, I had... Um, as most freelance journalists do, I had thirty million uh, burning a hole in my back pocket. Um, no, I was doing a, I was doing a story about the Bishop's Avenue, which is this crazy row of mostly empty houses, very big houses in Highgate, Hampstead, Hampstead, um, for the Sunday Times, and the the um, estate agent said, "Let's get, let's just go and have a look at something really cool," because Wittenhurst was on, you know, he was was on his books. And so we went and looked around Wittenhurst. Uh, it wasn't part of my story. We were just yeah. like looking around it because it was cool and it was empty and. This is in Highgate. Was yeah, in yeah. Highgate. And then, I'd been talking. So the, 
an editor at the New Yorker had been talking to me about doing something for the magazine and wanted to, uh, you know, wanted me to do something about property in London. He said, it's really interesting, is it not, that London's been kind of subjugated by all this Russian and Middle Eastern money. I said, wow, it's kind of, that's always been the story of, you know, um, London property, but it's kind of more so now. And he said, oh, okay, well, let's get a sense of, you know, like he was interested in iceberg houses and all that stuff. You're a very smart guy. Imagine that, like, you know, having that idea about like a city that's not yours and how interesting it is. Anyway, so I said, wow, there is this big house and no one knows who owns it. It was bought in 2008 and it was, but at that stage it was 2014. And you'd visited it by that And point. I'd visited it yeah. in, two th- you know, whatever it was, six years, six years ago. And it had been sold just after I visited it, but no one knew who owned it. I was like, it's really weird, isn't it? You can, this thing, you know, refurbishment would be going on for four or five years and still nobody knew who owned it. And all these rumors, oh, it's Putin's, it's the mayor of Moscow's wife, it's whoever it is. And I said, well, if I can find out who owns it, we, you know, is that a story? He's like, yeah, but you have to find out. <laughs> and you- it's, it was just- So you didn't have a commission? I did have a commission. Okay. I did. It was a, it was commission piece, but he said the piece only works if you know who owns it. Okay. So it's a it's commission with a pretty high bar to, um, to publication. And how much time had passed between at this point and you leaving the independent, thinking I want to make it in American magazines, and you you getting that commission? Seven years. Yeah. But I'd done stuff for the New York Times before. Okay. And and the Atlantic. So I'd, I'd had a couple of big stories published in the New York Times magazine. And had you gone to New York to meet them? How had you done that thing of kind of breaking? You know, yeah. Getting American yeah. Yeah. So I, I would I would go um, stay you know stay on a friend's sofa. Um, yeah, buy the cheapest ticket I could. Went stayed on a friend's sofa. I went around saw any editor who would see me. Um, great thing about Americans in general, I find, is that they like people who, who are ambitious. So, like, some kid you've never heard of with a stupid accent turns <laughs> up in a salmon pink shirt, and they give you the time of day, which is not necessarily something that would happen in London, I don't think. No. And so, you know, I got a meeting at the New York Times magazine. Amazing. Someone took me out for lunch. I got a meeting with an editor at the New Yorker. It's ridiculous. Which editor you know. was that? Is it your, it's my editor. Yeah, Daniel Zaleski. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I got a meeting, you know, th- it's... And how did that meeting then turn into you actually sending... Did you well, send they, him yeah, ideas? Well, yeah, I sent him ideas. Did, uh, how many no's did you get before you got oh, the yes? Oh, many. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, more than more than a few. And what is your, your pitching strategy? I mean, what, I, another New Yorker writer... Patrick Keefe, who's very gracious with me, he's, his rubric, which I often use, is three paragraphs and 500 words as a pitch. Do you, what's your sort of... Oh, I don't, yeah, it's, I, um, I tend to not, uh, I tend to try not to pitch by email very much. Oh, really? Okay. Um, email's such a dysfunctional mode of communication, I think. And you know it's because it's so ignorable, and people get so much of it. So do you phone them up, or is it so I say, what, you know, I've got a couple of ideas. If you had five minutes in the next week or so, can we jump on the phone? I think a lot of writers are just so afraid of rejection that at least if it's for email, 
they can deal with it a bit more. They, it must be difficult going to a meeting and having every piece. Well, you, you have to get rid no, of that. No, no. Don't you find that there's a risk that something can be like because because you're I it's, I've never pitched face to face. Well, I've, I've had meetings pitch, but I I often find that like if you say someone with an idea and you're there in person, you're asking for kind of a verdict immediately, and it's much easier to. Yeah, no, you say it, no, but, but the understanding is just let that sit with you for a little bit. Yeah. And then quite often they'll say, okay, do you want to just write that second one down? Yeah. And then I'll formulate something, you know, more, you know, it's written, it's it's on paper, not very long still. But I quite like, you know, I'm weird, I think, probably, in that I quite like talking on the phone. <laughs> um people who are 10 years younger than me can't they think i'm a psychopath <laughs> why you why do you keep calling me so it was work because i work on the basis that like a meeting is better than a phone call and a phone call is better than an email and an email is better than whatever you know par- part of the trick i'm starting to realize with reporting is that what you want the situation that you want by the time you get into like the last three weeks of a piece is a situation where you could call any of your sources that have helped you and they would tell you all this detail that you haven't got already that you could keep on going back to people again and again um so but what about the you know the getting kicked out of the taxi questions the time when you have to present the difficult stuff that kind of thing how do you factor factor that in i mean i see that as a very desirable model to achieve but like but I think even even people who are hostile to you, like I think if they've seen the whites of your eyes a bit. So this is my this is my point. The point is that if you forge some kind of connection, which is very hard to do on electronic communication, yeah, you need to forge a human connection with people before they're willing to get into the nitty gritty with you. And I, I just I, I cannot see that changing. It's really difficult to get people to tell you interesting stuff unless they've got some kind of sense of who you but, are but say with the Wittenhurst piece at yeah. the end of that when it's three weeks to close are you, do you have nice <laughs> chatty conversations with the Russians or what's going on at that stage well I'd spoken to 150 people so that that's but the that, principles though yeah I mean, the principles the same though you know even people who are somewhat antagonistic to me okay so it's not the Russians themselves however their lawyers know who I am the architect uh has got a really good sense of who I am, mm. even if it's somewhat anti- antagonistic, we can still go back and forth. It's okay. not silence. And I think all, you know, so some of reporting is just getting what you can, but if if you get what you can and then there's an Ed Caesar-shaped hole in the wall and you never <laughs> hear from me again, that's ultimately not going to be very helpful because you need to be able to keep on having a conversation. Did you ever hear indirectly from Andre Gruyev? That how you put it? I heard. Indirectly, I heard directly. I heard, oh, dire- I heard oh, directly. Really? Why well, I say directly as directly as an oligarch gets, which is through his lawyers. Um, <laughs> they were they were quite upset Did about you, the whole could thing. Could you have updated? But that, the that's, this is what I find fascinating because they, <laughs> you know, this this mix of you saying that it's very zen and everyone stays chatty with you, and you're like being lawyered by oh, an no, oligarch. But he was the owner of the house. That he was the made, owner of the so house. I didn't him. talk to him. No, I didn't talk to him. So I'm talking about the people say? that I do talk to in the story. Yeah. They need to keep on talking to you. And in fact, um, 
that yeah there is a weird dissonance i will grant there's a dissonance between sometimes you're revealing quite often you're revealing information that people do not want to be revealed yeah but you keep on saying to them listen the train's leaving the station and you're either going to be on the train or you're not on the train but that's that's you know the profiler's turn idea that you you talk to your subject and they tell you their version of events you then go and talk to your 30 other people and you then come back to the the subject and compare their take with them and then it's then in their interest to tell you the rest i mean you know i suppose what i find interesting is you know i totally agree that you should do it in as civil a way as possible but it's still quite a potentially quite brutal process right as you say the train has yeah i don't take it personally i think the the point about all this stuff is when when people are angry about it it's not you that they're angry with what did the lawyers say did they oh you know he a a lot of their a lot of the (laughs) a lot of their um problems were with the fact that you know i don't own i don't own the house i own this trust that owns the house and intend to use it for myself <laughs> you know <laughs> it was this sort of weird um circumlocutions that they felt were important but if you buy a house through a trust and then you live in it it's your house um and they were upset about all the detail that i'd got from other people about what it looked like and gosh it must have been strange him reading that really weird yeah um but then i think you know he's got four billion so <laughs> i'm not gonna cry Talking a bit more of, of technique um, and, you know, the subject of your piece may be feeling a bit odd when they read what you've written about them. You did a piece for Esquire about George Osborne. Yeah. And it begins by saying, you know, a little after 6.30, every weekday morning, George Osborne takes a bus from Notting Hill, <laughs> uh, goes to Leon for breakfast. And there's all this kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. minutiae about his morning routine. How did you get that? Were you following him around? I did not follow him. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to reveal sources, but that is extremely well sourced. Do you have a mole in Leon? It's an extremely well sourced. <laughs> it's an extremely well sourced bit of description. That. Do you know what breakfast he got? You don't say it in the piece. Um, I think it changed. Oh. I don't think he gets the same one every day. I guess Leon has different. Has different every day. breakfasts. So. Um, so you never tried to follow him. I never tried to follow George Osborne. Never I can say that, ca- tra- say that cate- categorically. I've never checker. followed the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, nor would I want to. Um, I do know. I do know from various good sources that I have for that piece that he was not unhappy with that piece. Interesting. How it turned out. Does that matter to you? No, I just find it interesting. Uh, an interesting um, sort of study in power and um, image. And what did it feel like writing about the press specifically? It was great. It was so fun. It was really, really fun. Uh, I loved doing that piece. It was just, um, it felt joyful. I don't know. It's if, because. It was perfect timing as well. He yeah, it was really, it was just really. Everyone was so fascinated. The whole, st- the whole like. story, the, the whole story from Soup to Nuts, that one, was just really, really fun. It's got that line like, he is still a politician. Yeah. He is still a politician. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I heard him being interviewed, uh, maybe it was on the Today programme or something. And, and that's how he talks all the time. He talks like a politician yeah. all the time. And he knows he's smart enough to understand what he's getting into. So I don't think, um, you know, the line that I got, which was really interesting, was uh, someone from The Standard wrote to me the day after 
going something like, oof, you know, we're all trying to work out how the um, uh, freezer bags line got out of the building. <laughs> and this person... Can you explain to our listeners what yeah. that line is? Oh, sorry. So I say that he'd, um, he'd exclaimed that he wouldn't rest until Theresa May was in bags, chopped up in bags in his freezer. Which recently got made into a rap song. Yeah, and has <laughs> taken on a life Lines, of its own, yeah. that one line. Is that, you know, it was so, the, when the, 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 the piece came out, both Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May were being asked questions about it. And I was like, this is the most, this is the, str- this is the strangest sort of post-publication experience I've ever had. This one line just took on this life of its own. Anyway. Understandably. So, yeah, but someone said, someone said to me, so this email says, we're trying to work out how that line got out of the building. And I was thinking, that is not someone who is actually interested just as a sort of fellow journalist and reader. That's someone who's been asked by George Osborne to, find the to finger, <laughs> to, to, to find the leaker. There was a leak inquiry from the Evening Standard. That was really funny. Can, can we move? We, yeah. we don't have that much time oh, sorry, left, sorry. but to, to talk about books um, yeah. and also about the, the ship piece. But could you, you know, how did your book writing career sort of develop in, in parallel to this? Um, the book writing career was really important for the magazine career because it allowed me to leave my Sunday Times contract. So I had this idea for this book about running two hours, which it became. And I had tried with not much luck to get UK publishers interested. Basically a work of narrative nonfiction about, you know, Kenyan and Ethiopian runners. And there had been some interest, but not very much. And my agent took it to New York, met someone from Simon & Schuster who read it on his subway ride home and got off the subway and called her and said, I want to make an offer right now. It was a really good offer, preempt. And with that bit of money, I decided I was going to leave the Sunday Times and be a freelance, so like totally freelance magazine journalist. Mm. Without that, I would, I, it would have been really hard for me to do it. You know, my first kid was on the way. Um, and my wife gently questioned whether it was the best time to be completely <laughs> cutting ties with someone who was paying me regular money. But... Yeah, I got that book deal. So the so the book deal was really important in fostering the magazine work, and was also just a brilliant educational experience in its own right. And my you know my life is a constant battle between the impulse to like drop all my magazine work and just write books, and the other way around. In fact, they kind of work okay together, except. I've got to do a second draft of my second book and I can't really think where I'm going to get two or three months to, you know, sit in a room and, and do that um, because I've got all this, I'm really busy with magazine work. So, but they, somehow they, somehow they, somehow they collide in that way. Um, I think a writer wants, uh, oh, Nick Pitt from the Sunday Times once described you as imagining you uh, in the field, na- nailed down by every fact, bashing out words with, on a typewriter with a cigarette, smouldering in your mouth. I've never done that. <laughs> How do you write? <laughs> uh, on a Dell uh, laptop attached to a massive projector. 
not a projector, a projector whatever, you know, whatever it's called a, a monitor you know like it's big yeah I but can, do I can you see. write in kind of bursts or nine to five no I just I just I try and start as early as possible uh, and I'm much better in the morning than I am in the afternoon um, so I tend to break up my di- like if I'm working on a draft I try and go if I can depending on childcare and other things I try to do something like 8 to 12 in the morning then I run for an hour and I have something to eat and then in the afternoon I try to do other bits of reporting uh, a bit of admin and then I'll try and look at what I've written between about five and six I was yeah I was going to ask where does exercise kind of fit into your it just just, yeah middle of the day you've written about so many topics you know sport you obviously write profiles about politics war is there any subject you know such as music for instance that you won't that you don't feel comfortable writing about no I think weirdly it's the the stuff that I love most that I tend to shy away from like so um I adore music and used to do it a lot and um, you know listen to it all the time and just have a huge endless um, urge to listen to lots of different kinds of music and go and see stuff although I don't see as much stuff as I'd like to and I've hardly ever written about it mm-hmm. Partix is really hard to write about music I think successfully there are some people who do it really well um, what fraction of your work now is, is your ideas and what fraction is stuff that editors have brought to you? Quite a lot is mine. Um, the Aaron Banks profile that I just did for The New Yorker was not my idea. Although, as soon as someone said at the magazine, you fancy profiling Aaron Banks, I thought, that sounds amazing. How much work are you rejecting? Um, a lo- I mean, a lot. Quite a lot, yeah. Because I only get to do a certain amount of stuff. Yeah, do you recommend what's your, other writers when you, when you turn down a piece? Uh, I have done. I don't always do. Yeah, I mean, I think most people have a really good idea of, you know, most people mm. who are asking to do something have a really good idea of who they would ask next. Mm. <laughs> and what's your bandwidth? What do you think your, your kind of yearly output of stories is? Four big stories, I don't know. Ab- absolute maximum. Depends whether you're going to do book work as well. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I never used to do this at all, but I find myself sometimes now uh, doing much shorter pieces. You know, like someone will call you up from like an airline magazine and say, would you give me 500 words on something? And it'll just happen to be in a week when you're reporting something or, you you know, there you have got a little bit of give in your schedule. And sometimes I quite like doing that. It feels like sort of stretching or... <laughs> You know, it, it feels good. It feels really fun to write something and it goes in a magazine. And yeah, you I suppose these commercial magazines do well. Yeah, I mean, I, well. it's quick and dirty, but mm. it's it's not unsatisfying. Um, I did this little series for Wired as part of a magazine deal about m- just me training for a, for a half marathon. And there were about 1,200 to 1,500 words, those pieces. And I absolutely loved doing that. I was... So in a way, I wish uh, I had some kind of, you know, bi-weekly thing that I could write because, I, you know, I don't write enough. Most of, my, most of my work is not writing. Have you ever regretted a piece? Uh, 
No, not, and it's, I mean, I've, you, know, you regret the way you approach stuff. Um, no, I haven't regretted a whole piece. Well, I can, actually, that, I don't know. I, I wrote a piece about um, the avocado, um, <laughs> the sort of cultural history of the avocado for the, uh, for the independent ones, which I think at the time struck me as quite sort of cleverly turned um, 2,000 words, you know, in about two hours. I think if I were to look at that now, along with a raft of other stuff that I did on very tight deadlines, I think I might actually, like, the, the interior screaming would be too deafening. So, so that was before the avocado became basic. Exactly. Hashtag basic. Hashtag basic. Um, we better not end on a negative. No. No, where, yeah, I, I was going to say, I had two, two final questions. Do you, do you sort of integrate with this increasing overplay of film and TV and long-form writing? And the second was, where do you see yourself in, in five or ten years? Um, well, I heard I heard the former thing described as the caper industrial complex. I'm not in I'm not in the caper industrial complex. However, um, someone is making one of my pieces into TV, like at the moment. Can you say which one? Yeah, the uh, Bell Possinger okay. um, story uh, is being, I think, reimagined. You know, I think they want to they want to do a sort of TV show in the world of, you know, PRs. Um, quite a cool idea, but they bought the option off me. Is that happening more and more? I've read yeah, more pe about pe people people do that. Yeah. Um, I would actually love to write some TV, uh, and I think that, you know, when I start when I came out of university and was trying to write screenplays, they were not very good screenplays because I didn't know anything. Um, and I know a little bit more now, and I think it would be quite fun to occasionally, um, you know, have a three or four month period where you just try to do something different. I think it's really helpful to write in different modes. Working with dialogue as well, I guess. It's working with dialogue, it's scenes, you know, mm -hmm. and, I, and I do, you know, like, so I try and have scenes in my stories, but it's not, you know, it's just a different thing, and it'd be really fun. I think, you know, I was really interested. I was, I was listening to Michael Lewis, who's an incredible writer in mm. magazines and books. I've just read The Fifth Wrist. Yeah, it's so good. And he, he writes. He says he wants to write TV. Right? Yeah, he writes, he writes a screenplay after every book, mm. and none of them have ever been made <laughs> because he's still getting better at it. And I was like, that's just such a cool thing. You know, he yeah. just he stretches his legs in a different medium where he's not the top dog. And it's, he, I, I guarantee it has a positive impact on the way that he writes magazine stories and books. And the second thing about where you'd like to be in five or ten years? I don't know. I'm doing the thing that I want to do. Um, so hopefully um, people can keep on letting me do that. And the, you know, the industry doesn't completely implode. That'd be quite fun. I think that's a sufficiently positive <laughs> yes, note to end on. So. Ed, thank you, being, thank you for being thank such you, a star Ed. guest and wishing you all the very best with your projects going forward. Thanks so much. Hello, it's us again. So to explain, um, as we alluded to before, we spent the evening backstage at the British Book Awards, um, where we've been hopefully scouting some new exciting guests for the podcast, and they've given us a room where we can record this intro. But Ellie, of who we've uh, seen tonight, who are you interested in getting on the show? I would love to get Sally Rooney on the show. She won uh, the Best Overall Book of the Year, which is amazing, since she was up against Michelle Obama for Becoming. I think she's brilliant. I love normal people in conversation with friends. Conversation with friends more. Simon, have you read any of her work? I'm going to confess I have not. But if she comes on the show, I, I will. I can lend you. 
Thank you. Her work. Um, I also saw David Walliams and Jay Rayner, so I'll be handcuffing them to lampposts later unless they uh, agree oh to come on the show. Gosh, please don't. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we should also we should also have like a brief postmortem of the Ed Caesar interview, and particularly his pink shirt. What did you think of Ed Caesar's pink he shirt? He looked pink shirt. Obviously, this is not a visual medium, but we can no. explain that he was um, accomplished magazine writer. Ed Caesar was wearing a pink shirt, which he was quite proud of himself, and he was influenced. Was it by Lukaku? Romelu Lukaku, yeah, yes. yeah. who's a um, footballer. I mean. Yes, I know that. Um, who was wearing it's his kit is pink, isn't it? His new kit is pink. Interesting. Anyway, we're going to draw this more experimental banter to a swift end. Um, <laughs> this uh, has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akam. And me, Eleanor Halls. Uh, our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is handled by Zara Hankia. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, you can support us <laughs> on Patreon. Um, you've missed out uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm also... But no one follows us on Instagram <laughs> anyway, so it's fine. Uh, yeah, God, let's let's end this terrible car crash of um, a banter <laughs> I section. I had one glass of wine. Okay, all right. Thank you Thank and you. goodbye. <laughs>